Hello, and welcome to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans, a podcast taking you on a tour through ancient Greek and Roman history, seen through the lives of the most famous and influential people who lived it, with the ancient historian and biographer Plutarch as our guide and companion. In the last episode, we talked about how, in the years following the death of Pericles in 429 BC, the conservative statesman Nicias and the wild and charismatic Alcibiades, formerly the ward of Pericles, emerged as opposing voices in the forefront of the Athenian democratic political scene. Nicias had secured a peace treaty with Sparta in 421 BC, giving both sides a break from a war in which neither combatant had been able to gain a clear advantage. The Spartans were unrivaled on land, and the Athenians were unrivaled at sea. Without naval power, the Spartans could not effectively siege Athens. Nor could Athens prevail with naval power alone, despite launching raids all along the Peloponnese and making innovative use of light infantry. However, the peace treaty brokered by Nicias seemed unlikely to hold, in no small part due to the efforts of Alcibiades to undermine the peace. These efforts culminated in the Battle of Mantinea in 418 BC, a full-scale hoplite battle on Sparta's doorstep that pitted an allied force of Argives, Athenians, Elians, and Mantineans against the Spartans. The Spartans won the battle and the peace would technically hold a little longer, but it seems it was only a matter of time before full-scale war would break out again once one side felt it had an advantage, or an opportunity. In Athens, Alcibiades was actively seeking such opportunities to gain an edge on Sparta, and thought he saw his chance when envoys arrived in Athens from the Greek city of Agesta on the island of Sicily. Now, before I get into what these envoys were doing in Athens, I should probably give a little background on the island of Sicily in ancient times. The island, of course, occupies a central position in the Mediterranean Sea, and as far back as the 11th century BC, The seafaring Phoenicians, from the area of modern-day Lebanon, began to establish colonies in western Sicily, having already done so on the nearby coast of North Africa. Eventually, one of these independent Phoenician colonies, the city of Carthage, located in what is now Tunisia, came to exercise control over all of the other Phoenician settlements in the area. In the 8th century BC, the Greeks began to colonize Sicily as well, initially settling in the southeastern areas of the island. Both the Phoenicians slash Carthaginians and the Greeks seized territory from indigenous peoples of Sicily, and it is from the Greek name for one of these groups that the island gets its name. I'm not sure if it's Sicils or Sicils. Anyway, the Greek cities located in Sicily, along with those on the southern Italian peninsula, constituted what would be referred to by the Romans as Magna Graecia, Latin for Greater Greece. The richest and most powerful of the Greek cities in Sicily would end up being Syracuse, founded in 734 BC by colonists from Corinth. There is a story from the time of the Persian Wars, which attests to the importance that Syracuse had already attained by that time, at least in the opinion of its tyrant. It is said that when the Persian invasion of Greece was impending, that Syracuse was invited to join the League of Greek Cities that was forming to resist the invasion. The tyrant of Syracuse, named Galon, agreed to join the fight on the condition that Syracuse would assume leadership of the allied Greek forces. This condition was refused as most Greeks thought that the Spartans were the natural choice for leadership at that time. Obviously. Right. But the fact that such a demand was made shows that Syracuse considered itself an important polis in the Greek world. Ultimately, the Syracusans would not join the war against the Persians, but instead Galon would win an important victory in Sicily over the Carthaginians in 480 BC at the Battle of Himera, which would be a major setback to Carthaginian ambitions in Sicily. Some historians believe that the Carthaginians and Persians coordinated with each other so that the Persian attack on mainland Greece and the Carthaginian attack on the Greeks in Sicily would happen at the same time. Yeah, that's very interesting. So 
by planning to launch their invasions at the same time, the Persians could be sure that the mainland Greeks would receive no aid from Sicily, while the Carthaginians could be sure that the Sicilian Greeks would have no help from the mainland Greeks. Yeah, exactly. And if the Syracusans had not defeated the Carthaginians at Himera, perhaps the Carthaginians could have lent support to the Persian invasion, tipping the balance and changing the course of ancient history. This is all wild speculation, of course, but it's the type of speculation us history nerds just can't resist. Anyway, I've got a little sidetracked here, but suffice to say that by the year 416 BC, the Greeks had a long history in Sicily, and Syracuse in particular was a wealthy and thriving city on the rise. It was in this year that envoys arrived in Athens from the city of Agesta in Sicily. The historian Thucydides indicates that Athenians had previously toyed with the idea of involving themselves in Sicilian affairs, but it was this envoy from Agesta which really piqued their interest. The Agestans had gone to war with the nearby city of Selinus, but found themselves facing stiff opposition after Selinus secured an alliance with the Syracusans. The Agestians argued that if the Syracusans gained dominance over all of Sicily, this would be bad for Athens, as they would have no allies on the island, but the Spartans would potentially have a very powerful one, as the Syracusans and the Spartans shared Dorian ancestry. Not to get too deep in the weeds here, but just to explain a little, while Greeks recognized other Greeks as sharing a common Greek identity, they also subdivided themselves further based on dialect. The dialects were Dorian, Ionian, and Aeolian, and the Greeks tended to believe certain stereotypes about the different groups. Dorians were seen as honest, plain-spoken, and conservative country folk. Brave fighters, but perhaps not the most clever. Ionians, and especially Athenians, were more seen as cultivated, urban, merchant types. Clever and adventurous, but perhaps too greedy and aggressive. Anyway, the Athenians were Ionians, and the Spartans and Syracusans were both Dorian. Very interesting. So, the Agesteans argued that it would be in Athens' interest to stop Syracusan expansion in Sicily by aiding them in their war, and to sweeten the deal they offered to cover Athens' war expenses. The Athenians did not immediately agree to the proposal, but sent envoys of their own to see how things stood in Sicily, and ascertain whether the Agesteans really had the treasure needed to follow through on their promise. The envoys returned in the spring with 60 talents of silver, which was a month's pay for 60 ships, and favorable, but unfortunately erroneous, reports of the wealth in Agesta. Okay, let me guess. Alcibiades was in favor of an expedition to Sicily. Nicias opposed it? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Nicias saw little that could be gained from such an expedition, even if it was successful, and thought it would provide an opportunity to Sparta if it failed. Nicias was not alone in his misgivings, Plutarch mentions that Socrates also foresaw disaster for Athens in this endeavor. But many Athenians were excited by the prospect of an expedition to Sicily, and none more so than Alcibiades, who saw Sicily as just the beginning of a glorious expansion of the Athenian Empire, and whipped up the enthusiasm and passions of his fellow Athenians. Plutarch writes that, quote, Alcibiades dreamed of nothing less than the conquest of Carthage and Libya, and by the accession of these conceiving himself at once made master of Italy and the Peloponnesus, seemed to look upon Sicily as little more than a magazine for the war. The young men were soon elevated with those hopes, and listened gladly to those of riper years, who talked wonders of the countries they were going to. So it sounds like there was a bit of a war fever kind of gripping Athens at the time. That's right. Enthusiasm was at such a level that even those who privately agreed with Nicias' misgivings about the enterprise didn't want to say so publicly for fear of appearing to shun their duty or look as if they didn't want to pay the ship money. Plutarch says that even before the Athenians could be assembled to vote on the proposal, their judgment had been corrupted with hopes and speeches 
so much that, quote, the young men at their sports and the old men in their workshops and sitting together on the benches would be drawing maps of Sicily and making charts showing the seas, the harbors, and general character of the coast of the island opposite Africa. For they made not Sicily the end of the war, but rather its starting point and headquarters from whence they might carry it to the Carthaginians and possess themselves of Africa and of the seas as far as the pillars of Hercules, end quote. With optimism running so high, it is little surprised that the assembly voted in favor of sending an expedition to Sicily, despite Nicias's warnings. Although, recognizing Alcibiades' impetuous nature, they did not give him sole command of the operation. Instead, three generals were to command the expedition. Along with Alcibiades, Nicias was chosen as well. It seems with the hope that his prudent nature would balance Alcibiades' boldness. And a third general named Lamachus was selected, perhaps to act as a bridge between the two generals though it is said that Lamachus could be a hothead as well. So Nicias could not have been happy with this, I'm assuming. Not only did the Athenians ignore his advice, but they gave him joint command of an expedition that he thinks is doomed to fail. Yeah, absolutely. To Nicias' eyes, the Athenians appeared poised to make a terrible mistake. And so when the assembly met again to discuss preparations for the Sicilian campaign, Nicias delivered a speech to the assembly, recorded in detail by Thucydides, which he hoped would convince the Athenians to reconsider their decision. Nicias argued that by this point, the peace with Sparta was only a nominal one, so it was unwise to launch an expedition to faraway Sicily when the Athenians still had a powerful enemy closer to home who was likely to attack at the first sign that the Athenians had suffered a setback in Sicily. He also pointed out that, even if the Athenians were successful in Sicily, the island was too far away from Athens for them to effectively rule over it. On the other hand, even if they left the island to be dominated by Syracuse, it is unlikely that Syracuse would attack the Athenian Empire anyway even if all Sicily fell under its leadership. Nicias concludes his speech with a not-so-subtle criticism of Alcibiades and his motivations for urging an expedition to Sicily. Thucydides records Nicias as saying, quote, And if there be any man here, overjoyed at being chosen to command, who urges you to make the expedition merely for ends of his own, especially if he is still too young to command, who seeks to be admired for his stud of horses, but on account of heavy expenses hope for some profit from his appointment, do not allow such a one to maintain his private splendor at his country's risk, but remember that such persons injure the public fortune while they squander their own, and that this is a matter of importance, and not for a young man to decide or hastily to take in hand. When I see such persons now sitting here at the side of that same individual, and summoned by him, alarm seizes me, and I, in my turn, summon any of the older men that may have such a person sitting next to them, not to let himself be checked by shame, for fear of being thought a coward if he does not vote for war." but remembering how rarely success is gained by wishing, and how often by forecast, to leave them the mad dream of conquest. End quote. Nicias then called for a second vote on whether to undertake the expedition at all. However, Alcibiades stood and offered a counter-argument, urging the Athenians not to abandon their plans, and assuring them that the Sicilians would be easily divided, and brought to heel one city at a time, and that the Spartans would be no real threat while the expedition was ongoing, as they still could not conquer Athens without a navy. Nicias saw that his argument was failing, and tried a different tactic. He began speaking about how large, well-provisioned, and well-financed the expedition would need to be to conquer a large, well-populated island such a distance away from Athens, in the hopes that Athenians would be discouraged by the great cost. However, this approach seemed to backfire on Nicias, as he spoke about needing at least 100 triremes, 5,000 hoplites, transport ships, archers, as well as slingers from Crete, the scale of the enterprise only increased the Athenians' enthusiasm for it, and they voted that the generals should have full powers to acquire whatever they deemed necessary for the expedition. 
So not only had Nicias failed to convince his fellow Athenians to abandon the mission, but he had actually unintentionally somehow convinced them to commit more men and resources to what he sees as a fool's errand. Oh, and of course, he's still expected to personally help lead this expedition alongside his rival, the wild and reckless Alcibiades. <laughs> it's like he's living his own nightmare. It really is. But before this grand expedition could embark, a mysterious event occurred in Athens, which caused an uproar in the city. A common sight in ancient Greece were square or rectangular pillars known as hermi or herms in English. These pillars featured a bearded head of the god Hermes on top and male genitalia down towards the base. They were thought to ward off evil and were placed near the entrance of houses, in front of temples, on street corners, crossings, borders, and other boundaries. They were all over the place. Anyway, one night soon before the Athenian fleet was set to depart, herms all over Athens were mutilated by vandals. Plutarch says that for this to happen so soon before this major expedition was seen as a bad omen by many Athenians, even those who weren't usually of a superstitious nature. Some thought that foreign saboteurs were responsible, while others thought it was reckless youth. But regardless, the matter was taken very seriously, and a reward was offered for information of suspicious behavior. It was at this point that Alcibiades' reputation and history of drunken debauchery came back to haunt him. According to Plutarch, quote, during this examination, Androcles, one of the demagogues, produced certain slaves and strangers who accused Alcibiades and some of his friends of defacing other images in the same manner and of having profanely acted the sacred mysteries at a drunken meeting. End quote. Knowing his brash personality, many Athenians found these accusations against Alcibiades credible. Well, I mean, it does seem like something him and his gang of young men might do after a night of Pergian. Certainly not outside the realm of possibilities, is it? So many Athenians started to become angry with Alcibiades, but they found that the bulk of the sailors and soldiers were squarely behind him, and the allies from Argos and Mantinea, 1,000 strong, plainly stated that they had joined the expedition because of Alcibiades, and that they would go home if he was treated badly. Well, it definitely seems like he was very popular with, the, with his soldiers. Yeah, I mean, whatever one may think about his other personality traits... Alcibiades was certainly an able military commander and knew how to motivate the men he led. Anyway, for his part, Alcibiades denied the accusations against him and wanted to stand trial immediately and get it over with before the expedition began. However, Alcibiades' enemies had no wish for him to stand trial while there was a large army in the city supporting him, so they argued against it and produced orators apparently unconnected with them to argue that the expedition was too important to be held up. And so the expedition set sail from Athens' harbor of Piraeus in the summer of 415 BC, with the cloud of the accusation still hanging over Alcibiades' head. Thucydides says that the enormity of the undertaking truly came home to the Athenians as they watched the fleet making its way out of the harbor, though their spirits were buoyed by the size and magnificence of the armada. Indeed, Thucydides reports that it was the costliest force ever sent out by a single Greek city up to that point. Wow, so this really is a make-or-break moment for Athens then. Potentially, yes. Like, if successful, they hope to leverage their gains to not only defeat Sparta, but perhaps conquer more territory in North Africa and Italy as well. If they failed, well, it seemed like nobody other than Nicias was willing to discuss that possibility. The fleet made its way to Corcyra, modern-day Corfu, to meet up with allies before making its way to southern Italy, where it cruised the coast looking to gain allies, without much success. At this point, the fleet was 134 ships strong, 100 of which were Athenian with a force of 5,100 hoplites, a little under half of which were Athenian. Three ships were sent ahead to scout Sicily, and returned to report that the Agesteans, 
whose plea for aid had inspired the whole expedition, were not as wealthy as they had pretended to be, and far from being able to finance a war effort, could only produce 30 talents. Not a good start to the expedition. Not at all. And so the three generals debated how best to proceed. Nicias argued that, with so little local support, they should simply try to settle the war between Agesta and Salinus, show the flag a little, so to speak, and head back to Athens. Alcibiades suggested that the Athenians stay in Sicily and work to encourage revolts against Syracuse on the island. The third general, Lamachus, advised a direct attack against Syracuse, as it was the most powerful city on Sicily. The fleet proceeded to Catana on the east coast of Sicily, and before any of the three courses of action could be pursued, they received orders for Alcibiades to return home to Athens to face trial for the charges against him related to impiety and the incident with the Herms. Alcibiades apparently didn't like his chances of winning a trial, and so did not return to Athens, but instead landed at the city of Thurai in Italy before making his way to Argos, where he stayed for a while and tried to salvage the situation he found himself in. With Alcibiades gone, the campaign perhaps lost some of its energy, and the Athenians were relatively inactive for the rest of the summer. This may have emboldened the Syracusans, who then sought battle with the Athenians, but were defeated outside Syracuse and forced to flee back to the city. The Syracusan cavalry was able to cover the retreat, though, and losses were not large. In 414 BC, Lamachus and Nicias settled on a strategy of besieging Syracuse by land and sea, and set about building a wall which would seal Syracuse off from the landward side, while their navy prevented access from the sea. As alluded to in previous episodes, siege warfare at this time was not very advanced, so attacking a well-defended wall was a difficult proposition. If the Athenians could build a wall from the harbour to the sea, they stood a good chance of trapping the Syracusans and starving them into submission. The Syracusans resisted with counterattacks and counterfortifications, but eventually the Athenian wall did reach the sea. During this fighting, though, Lamachus died, leaving Nicias the sole commander of an expedition he had resisted from the start. Meanwhile, though, Alcibiades, who had been tried in absentia in Athens, found guilty and had his property confiscated. Well, he gave up on returning to his home city, and instead was able to gain admittance for himself in Sparta. Wow, how ironic is this? Nicias is now the sole commander of the campaign Sicily, which he thought was a terrible idea to begin with, and Alcibiades is now in Sparta, the city he had been working so hard to defeat for years and years and years. Yeah, I mean, definitely a strange twist of fate for both men, and Alcibiades, in keeping with his character, threw himself fully into his new role in Sparta, and for a time ended up becoming more Spartan than the Spartans in some ways, but more on that later. Plutarch says the first thing Alcibiades convinced the Spartans to do when he arrived there was to send aid to Syracuse without delay. The Spartans dispatched the general Gylippus, who despite arriving in Sicily with only a small force, was able to reach the city of Syracuse, galvanize the defenders, and break the Athenian siege. Soon it was the Athenians who found themselves encircled by land, and being encamped in cramped conditions near a marsh, began to fall ill. They still had their navy, though, and could use it to flee and escape destruction. Though Plutarch says that Nicias was hesitant to do so, fearing, perhaps rightly, that he would face trial and execution in Athens for failure in such an important campaign. Eventually, though, it was decided that they would depart on the night of August 28th, 413. However, at this critical moment, Nicias's cautious and pious nature manifested in a way that would prove disastrous for the Athenians. On the night they were to board their ships and abandon Sicily, a lunar eclipse occurred, and this was considered a bad omen by Nicias, among others, and the evacuation was postponed. Despite the dire situation they found themselves in, 
totally hemmed in by land, with sickness raging in the camp. Unbelievable. Yep. I mean, even accounting for the superstitious nature of the ancients, it is difficult to credit the decision to postpone. And the Syracusans, perhaps again emboldened by Athenian hesitation, decided now to deploy their navy to attack the Athenian ships, destroying their only remaining means of escape. A fierce naval battle ensued, and the Athenians came out on the losing end. The situation was now truly desperate. The Athenians managed to break containment, though, with a night march, and headed south away from Syracuse. However, the Syracusans pursued them, avoiding close combat, but keeping up a constant barrage of missiles. Nicias sought a truce with the enemy, which would allow the Athenians to leave Sicily after giving up hostages and a promise of payment, but the Syracusans refused. And so he continued to march his troops south, hounded all the way by the Syracusans, and desperately lacking in food and water. Despite this, Plutarch says that, quote, Nicias, however, endeavored all the while by his voice, his countenance, and his carriage to show himself undefeated by these misfortunes, end quote. When the Athenians reached the Asinaris River, though, they found more Syracusans waiting for them, and all order was lost as men plunged into the river to get across first and escape the barrage of missiles from all sides, and also to drink the water. A slaughter commenced, with men being butchered even while they drank the befouled water. Nicias surrendered himself to the Spartan Gylippus, who accepted his surrender, but Gylippus was unable to prevent the Syracusans from executing Nicias. The other Athenians who still survived endured eight months as prisoners in quarries, before being sold as slaves, though Thucydides and Plutarch both report that some were able to make their escape and return to Athens. And so the Sicilian expedition ended in disaster, just as Nicias had predicted, but no one suffered more from this disaster than Nicias himself. The story of Alcibiades, though, is far from over, and we'll return to him in our next episode. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to head over to our blog at plutarchsgreeksromans.wordpress.com or check out Plutarch's Greeks and Romans on Facebook. And don't forget to leave us a review on whichever podcast service you're using. See you next time.